Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Today is Wednesday the 16th of June. I am Jan Fran, joined by Katrina Blowers. Hello, so good to be back with you. Hello, you and Annika are bringing us the briefing a little later in the show. What do you got for us? Yeah, Annika and I had a fascinating chat with one of Australia's leading parenting experts all about birth order theory and how where you're born in your family can determine your fate. You can't out smart and you can't outrun your adult siblings, but you can certainly outlast them. So they use a different set of skills to get by. Michael Gross is, uh, as I said, one of the leading parenting experts. He's come up with a different set of theories around Australia's shrinking families and how that affects where you're born in your family. So um, really fascinating topic today, Jan. Mm, Does he break down middle child syndrome and is it a real thing? (laughs) We're going to find out a little bit later in the show. Before we get to that, though, let's hit the headlines. Well, the Tamil family from Biloela have been reunited at a Perth hospital after they were moved off Christmas Island by the federal government and allowed to live in the community. Yeah, the minister hasn't um, yet bowed to any pressure, though, to allow the family to stay in Australia permanently. There are still massive doubts about their refugee status. And Alex Hawke, who is the immigration minister, says that any decision to let them stay could encourage people trying to reach Australia by boat. If the people smugglers see a weakening in the in the border protection stance of Australia, they will restart the trade. The father, Nandez, and elder daughter, Kapika, were flown into Perth last night and they were then taken to the hospital where mother Priya and the younger daughter, Thanika, have been staying. Thanika has had um, a blood infection. Yeah, now the reunions happened again after the minister announced that the family would be allowed to live in community detention in Perth. Um, this is while their legal battle to stay in Australia continues. Now, Australia's legal system has so far rejected the protection claims of most of the family members, but the youngest daughter, Tarnika, does have a right to apply for protection. If she is successful, it becomes the family's last chance at resettlement in Australia. However, there are many people, Jan, who are saying the Immigration Minister has extensive discretionary powers and Mm. could, in fact, step in. He has the power to intervene in this case through his own ministerial review of the situation. And when Peter Dutton uh, held that role, he he made um, similar exemptions for other people, most notably in 2018 when he granted a visa to an Italian au pair who was intending to work for a Brisbane family. Yeah, the Minister absolutely has discretion and um, has used that discretion many, many times. It's a very high-profile case for the government. They've come out and they've said, point blank, if you come here by boat, you will not be settled in Australia. Um, Both Priya and Nandez did come to Australia by boat. They're in a bit of a pickle because they can't seem to be backflipping on that. Mm. But at the end of the day, the Minister does have discretion and this family has been in detention for years, um, in my view, unnecessarily. A free trade deal between Australia and the UK has been welcomed as a new stage in our relationship by the leaders of both countries. I said we would be, we would wait for the right deal, Boris, and I think we've got the right deal, the right deal between UK and Australia. And that just lays the foundation further for the bigger partnership we have on everything to defence, to climate change. 
The PM, Scott Morrison, speaking there, um, alongside the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Uh, the pair agreed to a deal over a lavish dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I don't know it was too lavish, but it was. Um, I imagine it would have been quite nice. Um, this was at the <laughs> British leader's residence in London. Uh, this trade agreement will see both countries winding back taxes on each other's goods and restrictions on visas over the next five to 15 years. Good news for our local producers, especially the ones that have been hit hard by um, China trade restrictions over the last year or so. Mm -hmm. Also, great news, once our borders reopen bit late for me, sadly, but for anyone yet to hit their mid-30s, an agreement's been reached to extend that two-year working holiday visa, allowing Aussies to live and work in the UK. It will be up to the age of 35 now. The cutoff used to be 30. Yay! And a Melbourne housing block has gone into a two-week lockdown after a cluster of COVID cases linked to the site grew by two more cases yesterday. Those two positive cases, uh, again, are connected to some communal areas. Victorian Health Department Secretary Jerome Weimar speaking there. The new cases were two men who lived in different apartments, but they shared common spaces. Yeah, so under the lockdown rules, anyone who spent time in the complex between June the 2nd and June the 14th is being required to get tested and to quarantine for 14 days. So far, there's approximately 200 people that have been asked to quarantine for two weeks. It's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, and and the cluster at this site, um, which is in Melbourne South Bank, was first discovered on Saturday. This was after one man tested positive. It now stands at six cases. So I guess everyone's wondering when are those circuit breaker lockdown restrictions going to be lifted? There is talk that that could happen at 11.59pm on Thursday. Uh, Ministers met last night in Victoria to consider lifting that travel ban. So I imagine we'll have an announcement on that soon. An admission from Swimming Australia in the wake of explosive allegations of mistreatment, it can do better and could have worked harder to help competitors access an independent complaints process. In the next 24 hours, we will be sending a communication to all of our community, reiterating the avenues of process for any complaint. That was Swimming Australia Chief Executive Alex Bowman speaking there yesterday. Now, this news comes after two-time Olympic silver medalist Maddie Groves withdrew from the Olympic trials last week. Um, She hit out at, quote-unquote, misogynistic perverts in the sport. She posted something on her social media. Since she went public, I've seen it reported that young female swimmers are oinked at or have been told Mm. to get boob reductions and uh, called all sorts of names. This isn't the first time that Maddie's gone public about this kind of stuff. She was talking about it on her social media last year as well. And one of the things that's that, again, I've heard being said is that swimming is yet to have its Me Too moment. We've seen it in so many other industries um, and it seems that people are no longer being silent in this case either. Yeah, well, former Swimming Australia Chief Executive Lee Russell, who stepped down late last year, also took a swing at the sports governing body, describing it as a broken boys club. And speaking of broken boys clubs, an exclusive (laughs) Sydney club uh, is going to remain men only after members voted down a proposal for women to join yesterday. 
Shock okay, horror. So this is the <laughs> Australian Club in Sydney CBD, and its membership includes former prime ministers such as John Howard and Malcolm and, Turnbull. I think. Yeah, I don't know whether he's still a member. It has only accepted men as members, and they had they had a vote among members yesterday. And uh, nine newspapers reported that 62% of members decided against the proposal. So it'll stay for now. So weird, Jan, that this still exists in 2021. <laughs> Apparently, men-only clubs are exempt altogether from the Equal Opportunity Act. I've done a lot of stories on this. We used to have a men-only club in Brisbane, the Tattersalls Club, uh, until two years ago. And uh, the people always say as, as a, a rebuttal, well, there are female-only gyms, so we can have our male-only clubs. They also held yes, a vote. Yes, that's the same. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly the same. They also held a vote after the LNP conference was held at the Tattersalls Club and a lot of uh, LNP uh, female MPs just boycotted it and said they wouldn't go. Um, they held a vote and now women are allowed to join. Yeah. Hooray. Look, <laughs> I don't know if I'm shedding any tears over this. Like, do I really want to hang out in a club with John Howard and George Pell? <laughs> like, mm, not really. Although there were 693 members who took a vote here, 62% of them, as you say, voted against allowing women. But one of the funny things that I saw reported about this was that actually in the club, which I've never been to, by the way, because I'm not allowed to go in there, um, but there's a picture of Queen Elizabeth hanging on the wall. <laughs> the ultimate <laughs> so it's like right. women cannot go in this club unless they are in a painting. Good stuff, <laughs> fellas. That is it from me. You and Annika are coming up next to talk about... Yeah. Families. What order were you born in your family? There's a theory called birth order theory. It was originally developed by psychologist Alfred Adler last century. And it says that whether you're a firstborn, a middle child or the youngest, it has a huge influence on how successful you'll be, your personality and also your view of the world. So according to this theory, and yes, there are exceptions, firstborns are usually leaders with superiority complexes. They're more highly paid. They're more educated. I'm speaking as a firstborn here. Secondborns are competitive, but also peacemakers, whilst the younger siblings are attention seekers and risk takers. So where are you born in the family, Annika? Well, as I said, I'm a firstborn, but I'm also an only child, which Although only children are both firstborns and lastborns, uh, they do take on more of the characteristics of firstborns and it's something I've been quite interested in. Um, you grow up when you're firstborn and mostly <laughs> until the second one comes along and when you're an only child with two adults versus one kid. So often you have a bigger vocabulary yeah. and, and perhaps you enjoy the company of adults more and there's a lot of these things that even as somebody in my 30s now, I still recognise and I see a lot of those attributes that influenced my early childhood come up now. So I'm really fascinated by this. Now, where do you fit in this? I'm also a firstborn. And while I love all the stuff about, you know, being more highly paid and educated, I don't like <laughs> the stuff so much about being a bossy pants and also being uh, a perfectionist, which I can kind of relate to as well. I can I'm sad see. To say. I know it's something I don't like to admit, but probably mm. true. 
<laughs> but, you know, it's really interesting because the shrinking size of Aussie families has changed up this theory again only recently. ABS figures out last year show that our fertility rate is at its lowest level in recorded history. In 2003, the average family in Australia had three children and that number is now down to two. This has created what one social researcher is calling the Prince Harry effect, where there's no longer a middle child. We're seeing fewer middle children. So that second-born child actually takes on the characteristics of the baby in the family. They become the rule changers and the oldest is the rule keeper. Fascinating. To flesh this out a bit more is one of Australia's leading parenting experts, Michael Gross, who's releasing an updated version of his book, Why Firstborns Rule the World and Laterborns Want to Change It. Michael, thanks for joining us. Now, you've re-released your book because the family unit is changed. So I wanted to ask you, how are we seeing different birth orders and different families in the past two decades and even further back? Probably the biggest change is in family size. So when I first put out the book, My Firstborn's Rural World, and it was 2003, and the main number of kids that families had in Australia, or that's children under the age of 15, were three. Now, two decades later, the mean number is two. So in two decades, we've sort of shrunk a child, so to speak. So 60% <laughs> of Australian families, approximately 60% of Australian families, with kids under the age of 15 have two or less children. So that's had a really big impact in many ways, but from a birth order perspective, it means these things as a percentage of the population. Firstborns are a higher percentage, far higher percentage than they ever have been before. We've also have a new birth order position, which is uh, second as youngest. So when I first book, put the book out, um, second was basically the middle, you know, the middle mm. of the child, the second child, but pretty similar. Now, uh, many families are stopping it too. So the second child shares youngest child characteristics. Another sort of facet about that is obviously the middle child is, is, is shrinking. Uh, approximately 15 to 16% of kids in Australian schools now are surrounded by a sibling on either side, which I think is a significant loss. <laughs> and the other factor, of course, is that only children are now on the rise. So if only children were a political party, they've now joined the mainstream. Now, we're going to get to that um, second as youngest and, and what you've coined the Prince Harry effect in, in just a minute. I'm really keen to hear more about that. But we often debate, you know, nature versus nurture when it comes to the impact on shaping us as we grow. Tell us how important is birth order? Put it this way, that we're all born with, you know, there's a genetic imprint, which is temperament, and that doesn't change over time that much. Then we put around that which is the environment which a, a child's born into and probably the most important is family. So if you're looking at, you know, the, what impact do parents have on kids, well, start looking at what kids have in common. So if all children in a family are fairly independent or all children in the family are, I don't know, loyal let's or, or very social, well, that shows the parenting. Um, so, you know, they're the things that parents nag their kids about. Those similarities is the parenting imprint. But within that, there's a third aspect, and that third aspect is birth order, and that explains the differences between kids. That explains why you've got two kids, two years apart, same gender, 
uh, same gene pool, we hope, and fundamentally they're as <laughs> different as chalk as cheese. So why is it so? And that's that notion of where a child comes in the family is impacted or impacts on the, his personality in the early years. It explains the differences and it works for two reasons. Firstly, parents' uh, aspirations and experience are different for each child. So with the firstborns, we tend to go overboard or parents go overboard with the firstborn. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure on firstborns, but they get all the resources and all the attention. And uh, so if you're born first, you're you like to be a lot of responsibility tends to go your way. And then if you're sort of born last, well, mum and dad are a little bit over everything. And, and you know, the last one, you also realise that you can't outsmart and you can't outrun your elder siblings, but you can certainly outlast them. So they use a different set of skills to get by. <laughs> and usually outcute them as well. They're usually the cutest well, they ones. Do. Yeah. <laughs> they do. Look, this is, I've got no research to back this up, but from anecdotally working in this field for 30 years, it seems that if the youngest girl and dad's around, you got him wrapped around your little finger for life. <laughs> <laughs> now, Michael, let's talk through some of these different birth orders. You were talking to two firstborns here. So we're yeah, interested in the title of the first half of your book anyway. So why do we rule the world? Why are we such high achievers? Um, and does that relate to most firstborns? Do we see this yeah. overwhelmingly that we're perfectionists and, and bossy? And <laughs> annoying achievers? by the sounds of it. <laughs> Take the second part of the question, which is, does it always or does it apply to all firstborns? The answer to that is it usually does, but not always. It's not a neat set of numbers. And it's often about how mum and dad treat you. It's, it's like, you're the one who takes the notes to school. You're the one where the expectations are, are high. And generally, we call firstborns the family conservatives because most of the time, the firstborn's more likely to follow the family way. So firstborns tended to towards introversion and neuroticism. Oh, uh, good. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I relate to this. So, you relate to that. So the neuroticism is, is sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a catch-all term for maybe a little bit more likely to be perfectionistic, a little bit more anxious, a little bit more intense. Certainly, they're more likely to be that sort of introverted and uh, work on their own, do those sorts of jobs. Um, and then later-borns tend to be more towards extroversion, adaptability and sociability. Let's not forget about second-borns and certainly um, with shrinking families, this has become a new phenomenon that you have coined the Prince Harry effect. Love the name. It's very catchy. <laughs> Got my attention. Talk us through that. Traditionally, the second child is always going to be different than the first Sometimes the differences are very subtle. So, you know, I'll often say if the firstborn's the academic, the second one might look and go, well, you know, I'll do well enough at school to keep mum and dad off my back, but I'm going to shine in another area. I was looking around for a term for this, and um, when Prince Harry opted out of the royal family 18 months or so ago, I, I couldn't resist coining the new position after him because it fits him perfectly. In fact, when I look at William and, and Harry, it's... It, you know, they're the post to pair for the firstborn and then this new secondborn <laughs> position. So you've got William, who's born to be king. And if I said earlier that the firstborn's a family conservative, well, William is, you know, he is the family conservative, born to be king, set up to be king, played all everything the right way. He's 
married the you know, the right sort of person, and I'm using you know inverted commas as I say that, he's going to do a bang up job, no doubt about it, when he finally gets the crown. And then you got Harry, the younger brother, um, who looks back up and says, you know, if you're the heir, I'm the spare, and every time you have a child, <laughs> I move one further away from the throne. He's been a little bit more rebellious, even as a, as a younger guy, and then he's married someone completely different. So he's that rule breaker that I spoke about, and also he's challenged everything about the status quo and doing everything different. I am not only a firstborn, I'm also an only child, and often they get a pretty bad rap when we talk about birth order. They seem to be selfish and not very good at integrating. Can you talk to us about only children? Because increasingly, I know amongst my social group, people are wanting to have only children now, and it's a more common life choice. Historically, if you're an only had an only child, something was amiss with either uh, the partnership or physically. Now we know that started to change. We've got only children uh, uh, for different reasons. Sometimes it's we've left it too late as mum and dad. We've left it too late. Sometimes and so we only can have one, and we're seeing that more and more. Some people will choose only to have one because I want to put all my love and resources around one child. And then sometimes because of IVF as well, we we only have one, whereas in the past maybe you wouldn't have had any children at all. So I always look at the reason. So there's lots of different reasons why we have an only child. Um, if you were to use self-esteem and achievement as a well, measure of a well-adjusted child, many parents would stop at one because they tend to do pretty well in those terms. So a little bit like firstborns, they're quite happy in their own skin. So that was author Michael Gross, who is re-releasing his book, Why Firstborns Rule the World and Laterborns Want to Change It. The most interesting thing, I think, you know, I'm a parent, I've got two kids, they're very different to each other. I've got a boy and a girl, my girl is the oldest, and it, it has helped to explain to me why they just don't get along. Like, they, you know, I've raised them both the same way, but they just, they don't. They don't have anything in common, frankly. Maybe when they grow up, they will. So this is one thing as an only child, and I fully appreciate why a lot of people only want to have one child. But as an adult, it'd be really nice to have a sibling who had been through those experiences Mm. and was an adult friend. So hopefully, in your case, that uh, they get over some of their early differences and have a lovely adult friendship. And tomorrow on The Briefing, we time travel forward to the year 2032 when there could be an Olympics in Brisbane. How's it going to change the city? Listener.